There is an intersection um, outside here that has four corners. And if there was, if you were standing on one of those corners, and there were four of you, and you saw an accident, and I came and I asked you a question about what you saw, I think all four of you would give me a similar story, but there would be some differences. So if you're standing on one side, you might say, yeah, the cars came from the left. But if you stood on the opposite side of the road, you might say the cars came from the right. So your details are both accurate. It's just a question of your perspective from where you are standing at the scene. We're going to look at something like that this morning. I'll get to that in just a minute. Jesus is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was born to die for you and for me. I want to make this very clear that when Jesus came to this earth, and particularly as we look at the next section of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see him being led away uh, in an arrest, and then a trial, and then the crucifixion. And I want to emphasize very clearly that Jesus was not a victim. He was not victimized uh, by this. He did not come uh, and, and, and lose all sense of control here. He is God. He controlled every second of every movement, of every action that took place uh, during the crucifixion. And so it's important for us to know that uh, before we get into this passage. He came, the scripture says, to do the Father's will. Um, Peter says that he, um, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus declared, I lay down my life and I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. This will become more evident as we open the scripture this morning and we begin to look at the event um, in the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Gethsemane, I should say, and as we hear from four different witnesses. So I'm going to do something completely different this morning. Even though we are in the Gospel of Matthew, I want to give you the perspective of each person standing on the four corners as we look at this uh, event. So we're going to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four have a slightly different perspective. You know that the Gospels were written with, some, uh, with a certain emphasis. The Gospel of Matthew is written uh, to emphasize Jesus as king. Mark, the servant. Luke, Jesus, the man. John, Jesus as God. And so we want to look at each of the Gospels. And so we're going to, we're in this, the section in Matthew, uh, verses 47 through 56. You can follow along there. And on the screens, we're going to be putting up parallel passages in the Gospels, in the other uh, three Gospels, so that you can see. And what I've tried to do is take the four Gospel accounts and put them into chronological order. Because John might say something that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't say. And so we want to see all of the, the event here in, in Jesus' arrest 
as it happens in a chronological order. This is one of the events in the life of Jesus that is found in all four Gospels. Not every event is seen in all four Gospels, but this is one of the events that is. And uh, so we want to look at this uh, beginning with verse, uh, pardon me, with the Gospel of John, because that's really where it starts. So the passage in John chapter 18, uh, verse 1, says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So John begins the account with um, Jesus and his disciples crossing over the Kidron Valley to a garden, which we know is the Garden of Gethsemane. We see that in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. The um, Garden of Gethsemane, as Noad pointed out, they probably had an oil press there because they had uh, olive trees uh, there. And so the uh, Garden of Gethsemane was an olive grove that may have looked something like this picture that Daniel is going to put up now. There we go. Okay. So it was an olive grove, and during the daylight hours, this is probably similar to what it looked like. This is not the actual uh, Garden of Gethsemane, but it's something similar to it. And so you can see that there are large trees, big branches, lots of leaves, uh, sunshine filtering down to the grass, but at night, this would take on a very different look. It would be dark. It would be, frankly, it would be scary to be there uh, completely in the dark. And at night, this garden was shrouded in darkness. Interestingly, John makes no mention in his gospel of the agonizing prayer that we looked at last week uh, that took place here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do record that event, and we looked at it in detail. But I want to just bring your attention to a couple of verses. Matthew 26, 42 says, Again, a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus had committed himself to offering himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. In Hebrews 10, we read this, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. That was the purpose for which Jesus came. He came to do the Father's will, which of course included him dying on the cross And I would say primarily it included uh, him dying on the cross uh, for our sins. I want to emphasize again that it delighted the heart of Jesus to do the Father's will. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he did. Um, As we think of the Lord Jesus and his willingness to endure such opposition for our sake, there is also a profound lesson for us to learn. And it's also in Hebrews. We're told in Hebrews 12:1, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight uh, 
and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Who is the example? The Lord Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The anticipation of suffering was not pleasing. We saw that last week. But the anticipation of bringing many sons to glory was what brought Jesus joy. And even in the midst of such deep sorrow, and God the Father has made him the captain of our salvation. So after he prayed and he sought the Father's will and said, if it is possible that this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not, your will, not my will, but yours be done. After his prayer, the Lord Jesus came to the place where the disciples were again fast asleep. And so next we want to look at Matthew 26. And we've titled this slide, The Hour is at Hand. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now we want to look at the details of the arrest of Jesus and the fulfillment of Scripture. So the next slide is Judas, the betrayer. In John chapter 18, we're going to go there first. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Pay attention to this. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Matthew 26 says, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And in Mark, we see something similar. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, notice in Matthew's gospel, the word behold. Behold is a word that we don't often use, um, but it means Stop, look, see, if you add that all together, just pause for a moment, look and see what is happening here. Behold, it suggests that there is something to look at. It suggests there is something to see here in this passage. And he puts that word in there for us to stop and think about what is about to happen. Um, and it appears to me that there are two things to behold in this verse or in this, in this uh, section. One is the detachment of troops and officers is led by one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, one of the twelve. It's shocking. John tells us that Judas knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. It was a place of fellowship. It was a place of prayer. It was a place of teaching and learning, but it now became the place of intrigue and betrayal. 
I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been betrayed? Betrayed by a friend? Someone you knew intimately. Someone you loved. Someone with whom you shared meals and laughter, sorrow, life events. Someone you held dear to your heart. And for some reason, they rose up and betrayed you. They turned against you. And if so, you have felt the bitterness of betrayal. That's what is happening here in this picture. Behold, look and see. Judas was loved by Jesus. Judas was selected by Jesus to be one of the intimate followers of him. He was one of the twelve selected by Jesus. Behold, it was Judas who went out two by two with the other disciples to preach the kingdom of God. Behold, it was Judas who healed those who were sick because Jesus gave him power. Behold, it was Judas who taught for three years by the Son of God. Behold, it was Judas who had sweet fellowship with Jesus and with the other disciples. Behold, Judas, one of the twelve. This is a sight to behold. The psalmist prophesied of this event and said in Psalm 41.9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This event is in fulfillment of that scripture. Behold, Judas. But I think there's another thing to behold here too, another person to behold, and that is Jesus. Behold, look and see, who is this who is being betrayed? He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one whom angels worship, crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. Of him it is said, who has, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand, measured the heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Behold, the nations are a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon, the forests of Lebanon, where they were famous for it, are not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. It was John the Baptist who said when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, it is Jesus, God, in the flesh, being betrayed by Judas. Next, we want to consider how this diabolical deed was done. In John chapter 18, we see 
either a Roman cohort or a, por a portion of it. And we're going to read this, uh, John 18, 3. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was nighttime. It was probably midnight or past midnight in the early hours of the morning. Cool darkness enveloped the olive grove at Gethsemane, and under the shadow of the trees, Judas led a detachment of troops. A Roman cohort is somewhere between 600 and 1,000 armed officers. The cohort was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival to keep the peace. Likely, at, at least a portion of this cohort came out. Uh, in, in the other passages, it talks about a great multitude. And so if they divided the cohort into groups of 200, they called that um, a maniple. And so just imagine 200 armed soldiers coming out into this dark garden where you're at, and uh, including the commander, it says in John 18, 12, and they came to arrest Jesus. Jesus and the disciples were completely outnumbered, but as we will see soon, the great multitude of men was not more powerful than the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus was not overpowered. All previous attempts at seizing Jesus, arresting Jesus in his uh, earthly ministry, had failed. Why? For his hour had not yet come. He said that. Jesus says in uh, Luke twenty-two fifty-two, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Not only was the betrayal done under the cover of darkness, but it was also done by the forces of darkness, for Satan had already entered into Judas to perform his bidding. And Judas willingly complied because he loved money, the scripture says. He had the money bag, but he, it says he loved money. And the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he set a price on Jesus' head of 30 pieces of silver in fulfillment of that ancient prophecy in Zechariah 11:12, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. That's how much he valued Jesus. He's worth 30 pieces of silver. I'll take it. A bargain hunter. And he found a price of 30 pieces of silver. What is Jesus worth to me. What is Jesus worth to you? Next, we want to look at the sign of betrayal. In Matthew 26, 48, it says, Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. In Mark 14, it says, Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him safely, lead him away safely. In Luke 22, it says, And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, 
And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Judas led the army to the spot where he knew Jesus would be. He had a prearranged sign, a signal, where they would know who Jesus was in this dark garden in the olive grove. He would kiss the one they were to arrest. That was the sign. That was their signal. But Jesus first reveals himself. He reveals who he is. He doesn't need Judas to do this. Jesus is still in control. He is still in control of every step of this event. In John 18, we read this, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Now in your scripture, you'll see the word he. He is supplied. It's not in the original. Jesus uses the phrase, I am. That is the name of God. That is the name that God gave to Moses when Moses asked him, who shall I say sent me to to Pharaoh to uh, uh, ask for deliverance uh, from Egypt? And God said to Moses, tell them, I am. That is his name. And Jesus is declaring here in this garden, in this darkness, before hundreds of people, I am. He is God. And when he utters those words, and Judas who betrayed him also stood with them, now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's the power of the name of God. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these, the disciples, the other disciples, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. The passage in John shows clearly that Jesus was not taken by surprise. He knew in advance what was going to take place. He was in complete control of everything that was happening to him. He had planned for this day from eternity past. He had told Judas after Satan entered him, what you do, do quickly. There was an urgency to accomplish the Father's will. Jesus anticipated not only his death, but the life that would be given to all who believe. That's what he looked forward to. The life that he would give to you and to all who would believe in him. Had he not said in John 10, 15, I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself, I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. 
So he asks, whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. The name of God revealed uh, to Moses, as I mentioned. Jesus is claiming deity here in this passage. The voice that spoke the worlds into existence and said, let there be light, is the one who is speaking here in the garden. And just the utterance of his name caused the multitude to fall to the ground. There is coming a day when that name, the name of Jesus, will be uttered. And every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That name of Jesus. And here we have a glimpse of what is to come. Just the utterance of his name. Even his enemies bow the knee to him. And this proves that Jesus was in complete control of everything that was happening to him. Jesus was not taken by surprise. Jesus voluntarily gave himself to be arrested and to be taken to the cross. But what a terrible phrase we read in, in Matthew 18:5. And Judas, who betrayed him, stood with them, not with Jesus stood with them. He asked them a second time, whom are you seeking? They answered again, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am still in complete control. But here he is pushing the point that their authority to arrest anyone in the garden was limited to him. Whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, we've established that twice. Therefore, let them go. If you want me, here I am. Let them go. I'm standing before you. But after establishing their arrest mandate, Jesus says, therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. This is what Jesus had prayed to the Father in John 17. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. What do you notice in this passage? I notice the love of God. I notice the love the Lord Jesus Christ has. He is the great shepherd. The great shepherd cares, loves his sheep. And he's protecting his sheep. In this hour of darkness, when the powers of hell were unleashed and the principalities and powers were attacking relentlessly, Jesus delivered his followers, kept them from falling, kept them from losing faith. None of them is lost. Dear believers, we should take great comfort in this passage. When you are assaulted and tempted and tried, and it seems like all hell is unleashed against you, and the battle is raging to tempt you to quit or to sin, or that you no longer have the strength to carry on, remember what happened here in the garden. 
Remember what Paul said, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are assured, believers, that no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. What greater temptation or what greater testing was there than in this garden that night with the uh, disciples? And yet the Lord Jesus delivered them from it. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here in this dark hour, Jesus cared for his sheep and sheltered them from the arrest, imprisonment, and even death. He provided the way of escape that they might be able to endure it, that they might be able to go through the trial and not falter in their faith. And he will do the same for you in your darkest hour. Jesus will be able to say of his love and care for you and me, of those whom you have given me, I have lost none. You cannot be lost. Next, we want to look at the kiss of betrayal. In Matthew 26, 49, immediately... He went up, this is Judas, he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Mark 14, the account there says, As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And in Luke we read, But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The universal sign of affection and love was corrupted to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing could be more brazen than this act of deceit. He feigned the love of a loyal friend to signal that this was Jesus. Seize him and take him away. And the soldiers swarmed him and took hold of him. The other disciples, you've heard of the the term fight or flight, right? Sometimes in an emergency or in a crisis, People have the tendency to fight their way out of it, and others have a tendency just to flee. Fight or flight uh, response is what it's called. Well, their fight or flight instincts kicked in as well. And the first thought of the disciples was to fight, to resist evil, to win at all costs. And in uh, the next slide, we read about the strike of a sword, Luke 22 When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, his right ear. 
Matthew 26 says, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. In Mark it says, And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I want to talk about the weapons of our warfare. In John 18, we read the same account, but this time there's more detail. Then Simon Peter, now we know who, which disciple this was. This is the only gospel in which Peter is named. It was one of the later gospels, and Peter may have been dead at this point, and so he wouldn't have to see this. <laughs> then Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The urge to fight was strong and they asked Jesus, if they should strike with a sword. But before he could even answer them, Peter, impetuous Peter, reached into his sheath, pulled out his sword, cut off the high priest's ear, whose name was Malchus. And Jesus immediately rebuked Peter and told him to put his sword back into its sheath. Tonight would not be the night for judgment. Tonight would not be the night for revenge. That time is still coming. Jesus is coming again, and he will destroy his enemies. But this night was not that night. Tonight, the Lamb of God would be taken as an offering for the sins of mankind, including the sins that were being committed right there in the garden as he was being arrested. Jesus was still in control, and he would Drink the cup which God the Father had given him. You know, it's important for us as believers to realize that the church does not move forward with military warfare. We don't fight spiritual battles with carnal weapons. Our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are spiritual. Jesus said in John 18, my kingdom is, he's, we're going to read this later, but my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Believers, we are in a war. We are in a battle. But it's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. The war we wage is in the spiritual realm, not against flesh and blood. In 2 Corinthians 10, we read this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We do not use guns and bullets and swords and spears to spread the gospel. 
Our weapons are the weapons of faith and love and obedience to the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. These are the weapons of our warfare. Had Jesus wanted to defeat his enemies at this time or at any time, he could have done so. When he merely spoke his name, the entire army that was there fell on their faces to the ground, just uttering his name. That is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also says in Matthew 26, Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? The Gospel of Matthew portrays Jesus as the king. Jesus was not overtaken by his enemies. Jesus had at his command the superior might of an angelic force that could have slaughtered every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth, not just those in the garden. But he willingly gave himself up for you and for me that he might bear our sins on the cross. Had the Lord Jesus won this battle physically that night and slaughtered his enemies, we would be lost for all eternity. Think about it. When King Hezekiah, back in the Old Testament in 2 Kings, prayed to God to deliver Israel from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, God heard his prayer. And we read the answer to his prayer in 2 Kings 19.35. It says this, And it came to pass on a certain night that the, that the angel of the Lord went out, that's one angel, and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 men. These were soldiers. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead, 185,000 by one angel in one night. A single angel slaughtered 185,000 men from the Assyrian troops of Sennacherib. The supernatural strength of one angel destroyed an army. Now, a full Roman legion is made up of 6,000 soldiers. Jesus said he could pray to the Father who would provide him with more than 12 legions of angels. That would be more than 72,000 angels with supernatural strength. If one angel could destroy 185,000 men, soldiers, in a single evening. Imagine that more than 12,000, pardon me, 12 legions of angels could destroy more than 13 billion, 320 million people in one night. That's what we're talking about. That is more 
than the population of the entire earth in one single night. In other words, he could have destroyed the entire world by calling 12 legions of angels. But that was not the Father's will. The Father's will was not to destroy, but to save. And so we want to look at why Jesus came. It was for salvation, not for condemnation. In John chapter 3, verse 17, we read, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Had he called upon his angels to destroy the world, the world would be lost for all eternity. What restraint Jesus demonstrated while his own creatures turned against him to arrest him and take him away to crucifixion. What a demonstration of love he showed. Jesus taught revolutionary teaching, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And in man's darkest hour, Jesus demonstrates that love to his enemies. Daniel talked about that in the devotional this morning, about God's love, Jesus' love for his enemies. We were among that crowd. We would have been there uh, among them. And it is true of his love for you and me, isn't it? God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not summon 12 legions of angels because he thought of you and he thought of me and he knew how helpless and hopeless we were apart from his salvation. God spared us what he did not spare his own son so that the scripture might be fulfilled and that salvation might come to you and me. I read this passage, I think of a a Sunday school song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Luke 22, it says, but Jesus answered and said, permit even this, And he touched his ear and healed him. This is Malchus we're talking about. Jesus healing Malchus. Jesus had already been bound as far as we can tell from the scripture. And he's saying, look, release me temporarily. Let me demonstrate my love to this one man. When I read this, I think of that song, Jesus loves me, this I know. And this crowd of hundreds of people, there was one man among them that stood in pain, hurting bleeding profusely with his ear sliced off his face. The crowd was oblivious to his agony, but Jesus saw him. Jesus loved him and asked permission to be temporarily released from custody to touch this man's ear and to heal him. You can be lost in a crowd. You can be one with the crowd and feel completely isolated and alone and in pain. But even if you are an enemy of his, Jesus sees your hurt and your pain and your agony and your sin. And he's reaching out to you. Permit this. Let him touch you. Let him heal you. Let him save your soul. 
Jesus' actions show a personal expression of love for one individual in a crowd. Malchus was just another person in the crowd, but Jesus was moved with compassion for him, reached out and healed him. Jesus' touch brought about healing. How could Malchus ever be the same again? We don't hear of him anymore, but how could he be the same again? Could he say, Jesus loves me? This I know, for he restored my ear completely whole. Jesus loved his enemies and did good to those who persecuted him. If Jesus cared for his enemy in such an intimate way, how much more he cares for you in your suffering, in your need, in your life. Think of all that he has done for you and say with me, Jesus loves me. This I know. It is incredible that Malchus was healed there in the crowd. They witnessed it. They had to release him. I don't know whether he reached down and picked up the ear and restored it or just made a new one. But whatever he did, he healed him. And they saw it. That was an act of God. Who has the power to restore, not just hearing, but the ear in which to hear? But they did not bow down to worship the Lord Jesus. He had just demonstrated that he is God. But their hearts were hardened. So we have an arrest with no charges. Imagine the police coming to your home and knocking on your door in the middle of the night and taking you away. You have the right to know what the charges are. No charges are levied against him. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber? He wasn't a robber. With swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. In Mark, he says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scripture must be fulfilled. Then in Luke, then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Why would the crowd come with an army of soldiers with swords and clubs and lanterns to take him away. It was irrational. Since he preached peace, he was a man of peace. He is the prince of peace. He sat calmly, daily, in the temple teaching. This was an illegal nighttime arrest. No charges are levied against him. It was not only done under the cloak of darkness, but the sinister forces of darkness were instigating them to seize him. This was their hour and the power of darkness. It is likely that this event ended at maybe 2, 2.30 a.m. that morning. Jesus was about to face six trials by early morning, and he was to be on the cross by 9 o'clock. Forsaken, 
Matthew 26, 56, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Mark 14, then they all forsook him and fled. Jesus had predicted that this would happen. Once again, it shows not only that he knows all things, but that he's in complete control of all things, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And it is fulfilled. In verse 31 of Matthew 26, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That scripture had to be fulfilled. And here this night, it was being fulfilled. Although he was forsaken and alone, he also made a promise in John 12, verses 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And again he said, and if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. We leave the story here this morning, but you know the rest of the story. This was just the arrest. There's still trials to come. There is the beating that is to come and the crucifixion that's to come, the death that is to come, the burial that is yet to come. You know the rest of the story, but you also know that victory is just days away. That victory is that Jesus rose from the dead. His love for you must first be demonstrated by dying on the cross for your sins and for mine. Then would come the victory of his resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning as we think again of what you went through for our sake. We think of this arrest in the garden, and it's troubling to consider what took place there. But... We see your power, we see your resolve to not flee from the situation, to not run away from what you had planned from eternity past, but rather you willingly uh, went to the cross for our sake. You did your Father's will that salvation might come to us. Lord, be glorified in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.